right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuckadelics? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How are you? How's everything? How's the hike going? Today on the show, Aparna Nancherla is here. She's a comedian, actress, and writer. She came up in the uh, alt comedy scene that was happening around the start of this podcast. She's written for Late Night with Seth Meyers, Totally Biased with Kamau Bell, and uh, Inside Amy Schumer as well, and was a regular on the Comedy Central sitcom Corporate. Her new book is called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. And she's been around a long time. I, I'm glad we finally got a chance to sort of meet. But I mean, I've met her before, but this is the first time I really talked to her. You know how that goes. That's what this is about. So I know a lot of you are kind of on the edge of your seats about uh, what's happening with uh, with my refrigerator repair guy. Uh, I don't know. To catch you up, after all is said and done, after months of him, him and his son, him uh, again, there's yelling, there was insanity, things were taken apart, uh, broken freezer door. I mean, this is a journey. This is the refrigerator repair journey. But after... All is said and done, and most of the work was done. It worked for like three days, the ice maker, and now it's making the same noise it made when I first reached out, only a little worse. Now, I'm leaning towards a new fridge, but it seems like a big undertaking. And I'm kind of weird about old machines and doing everything I can to get them to be new again. I think that's sort of maybe what I'm trying to do with myself as I approach 60 here in a matter of days. Wow, nine days until I'm 60 years old. Don't tell anybody. Nine days away. I haven't really given that big a shit about my birthdays in the past, even the ones that you think would mean something, 40, 50, maybe even 30. But this one seems significant, doesn't it? Seems like it's time to kind of Wind down, turn the volume down a little bit, change the frequency to a lower one, kind of get into some lizard mode to uh, kind of extend my experience here on this plane. But in terms of the refrigerator, uh, I don't know where we're at. I reached out to the guy, no response. Reached out. I think we might be on taking a break from each other. I think me and my refrigerator repair guy, Alex, I think, uh, I think we're on a, he's kind of, I don't, I don't want to call it ghosting because my experience with him is that we end up getting back together again after a couple of weeks. We'll see what happens. I'm kind of over it though. I've had enough of this arc. I've had enough of this storyline, the broken fridge. I should just suck it up, get a new fridge or forget about ice or my, or make ice by hand. How hard is it to do that? Fill a couple of trays. Who needs a fucking ice machine? But that's always the case. I just wanted my machine to be what it was at some other time. Doesn't matter. I'll let you know how that goes. 60 years old. 60 years old. I'm only, I'm just a little younger than my parents now. That's the weirdest thing. I think I've talked about it before is that because my parents had me so young and they're both still alive, now that I'm approaching 60, that, you know, I have friends who are almost as old as my parents. 
It's just, it's not that the age gap closes, but it certainly shifts. They're just not that much older than me. My mom's 22 years older than me. Yeah, right? That's kind of crazy, isn't it? My dad's like 26 years older than me. Nuts, right? But now it's the gap is closing. But I, I imagine, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with them. I'm going to see my dad uh, this uh, this Friday because I will be at Wise Guys in Las Vegas tomorrow. That's Friday. Oh, my God. I'm going to see my dad tomorrow. And Saturday, September 22nd and 23rd for four shows. I'm in Bellingham, Washington at the Mount Baker Theater for one show on Saturday, October 14th, as part of the Bellingham Exit Festival. I'm sold out in Portland for October 20th through 22nd. Boston, I'm at the TD Garden for Comics Come Home on Saturday, November 4th. And I'll be in Albuquerque, New Mexico at the Chemo Theater for one show on November 11th. Denver, Colorado, I'll be at the Comedy Works South for four shows, November 17th and 18th. Go to wtfpod.com slash tour for tickets to all of those. Okay? Also, I wanted to throw something out here. Like, I felt bad the other day. I was talking about St. Louis and, and all the things I did in St. Louis, and I couldn't remember the jock over at the uh, KMOX station, I believe it is. Dave Glover was the afternoon drive time I did. We had a nice conversation about music, about aging, about all of that. But I couldn't remember his name. And I said, I think it might have been Roger. It's not. It's Dave Glover. I just wanted to make sure I straighten that out. Because after all that love I gave to St. Louis and uh, and spacing his name out, if he even noticed, that's got to be, uh, that you know, that kind of stuff. That kind of stuff stings a little bit. So, Dave, I'm, I'm just doing this for you. I, I hope you hear this. It was a very uh, pleasant conversation we had on your show. All right? Little cat news, uh, Sammy seems to be uh, evolving. Sammy, who I thought might had some sort of, uh, uh, might have been on the cat spectrum of some kind, uh, which I guess all cats are, but he was just a little, not quite, not quite right, a little off. But all of a sudden he's turning into something else. He's just quirky. You know, what do, what do I expect out of cats? I mean, they're, they're, they're dumb. They're all dumb, but they're, they're interesting, but yeah, Sammy is starting to come out of his shell is the point. So now I want to discuss a dream I had that I'm trying to put together. It's weird when you remember dreams, but here's what I remember. I remember I was asked by a couple of character actors, one who was in uh, the seven ups, which I just watched and also the French connection, but I recognize they were character actors in my dream they told me that I needed to go kill a bunch of people, kill a bunch of Japanese people at this place. It was, they were Japanese mob or something. It wasn't AI, the place, and it wasn't a karaoke bar, but it was a, a reality themed bar. <laughs> yeah. It was a reality themed place. And there were going to be four or five that I had to go and hang out with them and then shoot them with a pistol. And I, I remember that feeling in the dream that like, I'm not a killer. I can't do that. I can't do it. What if I don't do it? And then the character actor was like, well, now you know about it. You have to do it because, you know, if you don't, the implication was that they would have to kill me. And I, I was pretty sure I would get killed if I tried to do it. 
But then somehow or another, I pulled it together and I was like, no, nah, I can do it. I can take them all out. And uh, that was the end of the dream. I don't really know where to go with it, but I was able to sort of figure out why it was loaded up in my brain. Kit and I were talking about anime. That kind of fills in the Japanese element. I just gone and shot a gun. So that kind of fills in the gun element. Um, and in terms of the reality-themed place, I like the idea of that, a reality-themed anything. Uh, that's obviously because of all this news about AI. But look, I'm just happy that uh, I'm not a killer in my dreams or one in real life. But that moment in a dream where there there's something terrifying or something that you can't get out of the, the idea that if I didn't do it, they would kill me. I felt that in real, um, in a real mental and emotional way. And there, it's such a relief to wake up when you're in that feeling. Like just that moment is like, Oh my God, thank God. I didn't, have to go kill all those people and probably get shot myself at the reality-themed bar, the reality-themed event. Anyway, as I said, Aparna Nanchero has a comic. She's got a book out. It's called Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome. Having a convo, having a chat. Why is it not registering the voices loud enough? How about now? How are you? I, I oh, mean, there I... there you go. Okay. Now you're good. I just had to adjust the knobs. <laughs> you're Everything still, is what? a question of adjusting the knobs. Yeah, all kinds of knobs. In, internal knobs. Internal knobs. External knobs. Other people's knobs. I know, I know. Those are the worst ones. Yeah. Because you can't, you have no control over them, really. Because you have your idea of the ideal settings, and they have their <laughs> idea of the ideal settings. Yeah, and then there's the factory settings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which are... Which none of us can override. That's yeah, right. It's the worst. I, um, it's weird because, like, I don't know, when did, when did I meet you? Do you know? No, I I sort of, I couldn't pinpoint an exact anecdote, so I figured it was the festival circuit or the yeah. L, or an L.A. show. Yeah. Yeah. I remember meeting you, and it's, it's weird because after I kind of went through your book a little bit. Yeah. And watched uh, some stuff, you know, I'd seen you on stage before, but I just watched some other stuff to refresh my memory. Oh, sure, sure, that you're a, you're a consummate interviewer. Oh, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, but I always felt like, you know, there was something familiar and maybe um, uh, something I couldn't handle. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> it means that I, you know, I come from depressives. Yes. And I am, you know, sort of wired by depression. Yes. And when you sense... Someone who has innate depression. Oh, yeah. There's a familiarity to it. Yes. That inside of you, you're just sort of like, all right, well, she can uh, do her thing. and. Uh, oh, yeah. it. I find that so strange with mental health where, where sometimes if you sense someone has the same general area of yours, yeah. you kind of, there is a little to territoriality where is your what was yours like you know? well there's that but <laughs> yeah. there's also this sort of like um fear yes that you, yeah. you know you're gonna get you know reinfected 
Oh, for sure. Especially with depression, where I have friends with depressives, and I'll be like, okay, I'm on an upswing right now. I really can't have you bringing me down. (laughs) That's right. So call someone else for help. (laughs) Well, yeah, and uh, it's it's odd because there are other similarities uh, that I have. But, I mean, so when did you, where'd you grow up? I grew up outside Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. Oh, I have no idea. Like in uh, Alexandria? I went to high school near Alexandria, but I grew up in McLean, like near Langley. McLean, yeah. Yeah. There used to be a comedy show in Alexandria at a hotel there. (gasps) Yeah, Chip Franklin used to run a show at the uh, Holiday Inn or one of the... It was just over from... I remember, you know, I I used to do it when I was younger. What? Yeah, yeah. My first open mic was at a Best Western. Where? In McLean. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah. What was the first comedy show you saw? I think... uh, Jim Gaffigan at the Improv. Oh, really? Yeah. In D.C.? Yeah. Oh, so before Jim was huge? I think it was when he had a couple CDs. I think it was before, yeah, he was doing like the big theaters. But when you, like, what brought, uh, why are your people in D.C. area? My parents are both doctors and they emigrated from India in the late 70s. Oh, really? Yeah. And like, uh, do you still have a lot of family in India? Yeah, I would say still, like, most of my mom's family is there and about half of my dad's family. Really? Yeah. Do you go? I used to go. I feel like as I've gotten older, I just haven't made the the time or, like, you know, it's been harder to schedule. Because I went a lot when I was a kid with my parents. Yeah? Yeah. That's a long trip. It is. It, we would always detour through, you know, Frankfurt or yeah. London. So you have a relationship with India anyways. Yeah. But like I have an older sibling and they were born in India and I was the only one born in the in the U.S. Yeah. How many sibs? Just one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just one older, two years older. Uh-huh. But I, I always kind of had this weird pride of being like, I'm the real American, like when I, which is in hindsight so shitty, but. You'd say that to your parents? <laughs> I'm the only one who deserves to stay. Yeah. Well, it's kind of, I don't know about that part, but it's true, I guess, uh, it, just on a uh, on a citizenship level, you're the, the only I know, real I, American. Yes, yes. But I grew up like during the height of the Gulf War, so I think yeah. I fully bought into the propaganda of like, greatest country in the world. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. You, just, you got sucked right in? I got sucked right in. I remember- How old were you? I think I was like seven or eight. Yeah. Seven yeah. or eight. Yeah. Oh, that's about, yeah, I think that's uh, about, or it feels like- Late 80s, early 90s? Yeah. This is an answerable question, but I'm not going (laughs) to. There's a way to find out, but not anything we could access. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so you 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 got excited by uh, being American because the news told you. Yeah, and I was I was uh, like all the careers I was interested in as a small child are all now like I would fully be canceled. Like I wanted to be a cop. I wanted to be a soldier. Really? I, yeah, yeah. But wait, so what? What you have older brother? Older non-binary sibling. Oh, and what? Uh, what's that person do? They work in sort of public health and they do a lot of, they're basically a somatic therapist. Oh, interesting. A therapist who specializes in somatic therapy. What does that mean? It's like a lot of body-mind connection work. Have you tried it? I haven't tried it. Really? But I think I need to because I think I live very much in my head and I need to be more attached to my body. It's hard when when you have anxiety and depression to live in your head because it's always uh, not a great party. 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, and I know you write about it in the book, but like, I, it, it, if only I had more control over my imagination. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> what it does on its own never goes to great place. Yes. Is yes. that you find that as well? You're just yeah. confirming that. I, yes. I mean, I feel like I have two flip sides because I feel like people who are prone to depression, anxiety, like we have. If we are comedians, we have kind of two sides of the same coin where it's like on one side, we're like, oh, my gosh, the world life doesn't mean anything. Everything's pointless. Like, I, why do I even wake up in the morning? But yeah. then the other side of it is also how you find jokes, right? You're like, why is this like this? This Everything's so random. Like, Well, I find, uh, you know, when I tell my story over and over again. Yeah. When people ask me why comedy is because I felt that comics, when I watched them when I was a kid, were able to sort of disarm and make sense of pretty big things, yes. no matter what they were. Yeah. So I, I think for me, like my imagination isn't, there's not two tracks. One is a comic and one is an anxious, depressive person. There's that track and then there's the one that tries to make sense of it and make me feel better. Yes. And, and then look for uh, at least some validation from other people. That I'm not, you know, a uh, fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I, I turn to comedy to connect with other people, but I think ultimately I still feel outside of everyone else. Yeah, because we don't live like normal people. Yeah. Like, that's the choice we made. Yeah, but I think I already felt that, and then I was like, I'll just embrace a lifestyle that confirms that. Oh, yeah. Well, that's good to be uh, less comfortable, but at least uh, have a job in, in that world of discomfort. But, I mean, people call comedians modern-day philosophers, and I, that's, I am— that's, that's a new mis— it's not, I don't like that, but I do feel like sometimes as someone who is self-employed and waking up at 11 and then, you know, wandering to my living room and being like, this is my job, like, I, I do feel like sometimes I'm paid to think, and that feels wrong. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I guess we are paid to think. I I generally uh, usually go with paid to talk. Yeah. But you you do a lot more writing than I do. So, like, when I was going through the book, though, when you say that you felt a sort of weird uh, patriotism and more American, that that sort of followed you through elementary school and and that you yeah i think i i mean i think i fully bought into the army ads where it was like be all you can be and i was like yeah that that's the point but you didn't feel like an outsider when you were a little kid i did i think i think maybe that also was what attracted me to those like sort of patriotism things to feel like part of something because i very much didn't feel like i fit in with my classmates and i was like well at least this would give me I would be part of something bigger than me or would give me a sense of meaning in a way that I don't feel yeah. day to day. And what, like your parents, like, were they, uh, um, have high expectations? Were they hard on you? Yeah, yeah, you know, South Asian parents have right. a reputation. Sure. Uh, the, you know, they were both doctors. I think they had a certain expectation we would become like doctors or some other. What kind of doctors? Oh, your dad was uh, an anesthesiologist. Dad, anesthesiologist, mom, endocrinologist. Uh, endocrine system. Yeah. That's very specific. I know. I it was, it was one of those that you had to then explain. There was like a follow-up explanation. People yeah. would be like, what kind of doctors are your parents? And then what's an endocrine? 
hypochondriacal and all right. of this. Yeah. Yeah, because I think during my uh, my high level of hypochondria, yeah. I saw a, an endocrinologist. I don't know or remember what for. I always say it's like hormones and glands. Glands. Yeah. Glandular problems. It's big, a gland, big gland area. <laughs> <laughs> now, when they, when they came over here, did they do their residency here? Did they, like, how did it work? My dad, I think, came here for his residency, and then my mom, I think, came had an arranged marriage, came moved here with my dad, but then got pregnant and then had to move back to India to finish med school. So they're an arranged marriage? Yeah. Oh, my God. What now? <laughs> that really stopped you cold. No, no, I've, I've heard of, you know, I've heard it before. I've talked to other people yeah. uh, 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 who have that in their family. And certain people that have run away from it. I can't remember who I talked to, who whose mother maybe a, you know kind of got out of an arrangement. Maybe it was oh was it Namesh? I don't know. It might have just been who I talked to just recently that there was an arranged marriage, but it was a bust. Oh yeah, that happens. Yeah, and and then here they married somebody else. Or, okay, you know, yeah, at, that's ref- that's a refreshing twist. <laughs> <laughs> what what is the re- the religious background that you come from? Uh, Hindu. Yeah, I need to, I need to uh, every time I speak to somebody with an Indian background, I need to be explained <laughs> how <laughs> how these religions and castes work. Well, to me, I think Hinduism, especially right now, is having a moment where it is almost like the you know the fundamentalist right here, like yeah. the evangelicals, where it's like there is a far-right kind of Hindu. Is that who the, the prime minister is? Yes. Is that who Modi yes. is? is yeah. His, yeah. And I feel like it's to the point of like, you know, persecuting other religions, which is not obviously in the, the nature of it. nature of it. Yeah. yeah. But you were brought up with it? Mm-hmm. And what, did did you go, like, as a family to what kind of house of prayer? I would say we were not, like, orthodox or, like, uh, practiced heavily, but we would we were, like, holiday Hindus, you know, go to the temple on the sure. big holidays. Sure, yeah, I'm a holiday Jew. Yeah, yeah. And uh, is that the vegetarian? Uh, it, it, it uh, some are, because it kind of depends on what caste you are, and I think if you're, like, a Brahmin, which is, like, the high caste, yeah. that's, like, pure, so you don't right. eat meat, but we were not raised, we were not Brahmins, so. We, Brahmins. Yeah. That's the, what is that, the ruling class, or the I think it's, arist- like, the, the, like, wise, like, learned Oh, yeah, so people. you're a little vague on it. And then I think the royals <laughs> are, <laughs> or are below that, and then there is, like, the workers, which was our, right. Yeah. Right, the workers, the uh, the the billions <laughs> of workers, <laughs> the so, faceless masses. So, when you were growing up, how different did you feel in in school and stuff? Did you? I mean, I think it was not just like being like a, a brown kid. Like, I was also really shy and I, really anxious. So, I think I just like any difference I felt was compounded by just being scared all the time of everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, and I didn't have the words for it back then. Like, I don't think I even thought of myself as an anxious person until... How would you know that when you were a kid? Yeah, you don't know. You Your have... parents didn't, like, take you to doctors? My mom was always trying to, like, make me less shy. How, how, how'd that go? Uh, not well. I mean, what, what were those exercises? <laughs> like, I had to practice um, ordering pizzas over the phone. <laughs> Like, we would have, you know, weekly yeah. family pizza night right. and be like, you're going to place the order. 
<laughs> it was yeah. terrifying. Really? To talk yeah. to the pizza guy? They didn't, I mean, they well, don't they have time. they can be time. a little harsh. Yeah, they, they're yeah. busy. They're, they're not getting paid enough, and they're mad. <laughs> so would you... Would you bail in the middle of the call? No, yeah. I would do it, but I would like, you know, kind of black out and go to a different part of my brain. <laughs> because of a pizza ordering thing. I mean, I would just like memorize the order, like sure. almost like an incantation and then just spout it so out. This is interesting because, I mean, the way you're talking about it, this is fairly specific trauma. They don't cover this the, the, in the, therapy the, school. The, the pizza ordering, you know, maybe you need to do some EMDR on that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's tough to break into the EMDR circles, I find. I've been trying to find someone to do EMDR and I keep finding therapists who do it. And then they're like, actually, I've sort of moved on from that. Like they really (laughs) don't want to do it. Really? I mean, I think people are still doing it, but they're just like, that's not what I'm excited about right now. It's a passing fad. (laughs) Within I, the therapy community, I thought it was really effective. So I'm like, I don't know why it's so hard to get I got any for of you. you to do it. I have somebody. Okay, great. <laughs> She's good. <laughs> I you, love. I'll take yeah, Rex. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So it goes on. When do you start having real problems? In terms of oh, with the anxiety, or just like yeah, and and you know the body image stuff and. Yeah, I mean that was all college. I I would uh, say like my official di- diagnosis of depression was when I was nineteen. Oh, and when did you? Because like the other thing, the other weird thing that we have in common is when I was in high school. Yeah. Um, I went to an orthodontist. <gasps> and oh my gosh! And I had had braces on my teeth for a year and a half, and then the orthodontist said, "Well, they're not going to fix your bite." And one orthodontist, who we only went to once, uh, thought I had acromegalia. What's that? That's where you, your bones have a disease where they keep growing. There's oh a couple of gosh. famous horror actors. Rondo Hatton was one. And oh. who else has acromegalia? Well, uh, like, you know, uh, what's his name? Andre the Giant. Like they never stop growing? Yeah. And they, they're giant, it's gi- they become giant and their, their bones get disfigured. Oh, my god! So he's like, you might have this. And he showed me and my mother a picture of this head with this oh massive protruding jaw. My mom's like, we're not going back to that guy. So we went to another Do you guy. Think that guy takes that out for every person because he's just, that's his Maybe bit? Maybe that's his bit for <laughs> underbites. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I had this underbite and this jaw that wasn't, it was exactly what you described in your book. It would it would never meet. Yes. And the threat was your, your teeth are going to wear wrong. Well, Yes. So we went to another guy and he's like, well, here's what, what has to happen is, you know, we'll take the braces off. Yeah. We'll break your jaw, reset it, yep. wire it shut. Yep. yep. And then you'll, you know, you'll have to deal with that. And yeah. then, uh, you know, and then we'll put the braces back on. And I was in high school and I'm like, I'm good. Like yeah. my yeah. mother, like I didn't do it, but you did it. I did it. And honestly, I think you made the right choice. Well, what 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 led you to that? Was it the similar thing? Because I still have sort of a, an underbite. My teeth don't meet, and they're all kind of my my mouth is kind of fucked up. But you know, I make do. <laughs> yeah. And when 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 my teeth goes out, I I replace it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean when it goes out? When it just leaves your mouth? Well, I because of either the bite or sort of aggressive brushing, my gums are not great. But like, oh, I, neither are mine. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it has something to do with the same thing. Um, so. Like recently, I just, I had a tooth that was a root canal and then it was, it, it was, it's just natural. I mean, I'm 59, yeah, but yeah. I, I did have another one put in 
You know, it took a while. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can just... And I don't think any of that is because of the job. No, I don't think so. I, yeah. I don't... I, like, the, the only problem with not getting the surgery is, like, my bite literally only meets in two places. So chewing food... Okay. You know, properly is difficult, and there's a lot of wear on, you know, there's a lot of tension on these two or three teeth. Well, I would say with the surgery, yeah. I, I still don't have all the feeling back in my chin. Oral surgeons are the worst at that. I had a thing removed from my, in, like, a, 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 like, it, like there was a, you know, sometimes when you bite your lip and you get, like, a bubble? Yeah. Because you break a gland? Yeah. I had one of those removed by a guy. Yeah. He's like, oh, yeah, the feeling will come back. It's like, it didn't. <gasps> so over here, it's a little, little numb, but it's not big oh geez but but so did you have a choice about the like was it because you kind of make it seem like there there was part of a cosmetic thing but yeah, I, mean, I mean it was more of a cosmetic thing i think i i, I was given the same spiel about like you know your teeth are going to be worn down but it, but he certainly wasn't like it's critical that you get it and yeah. but i was like no i look weird i need to fix this right, right. especially if i'm gonna go to hollywood right well, yeah. how old were you Twenty? How old was I? Oh, so this was like this after. This was like late 20s. Oh, so this is after yeah. you go through the uh, dark woods <laughs> of self-realization. Yeah, yeah. This Wasn't is it? So in high school, later. you just were okay with your jaw. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. I wasn't even thinking about being perceived. Yeah, that's an interesting part in the book, too. Like, how did you know? How is that not uh, a red flag of depression? <laughs> <laughs> you just... Didn't he, what does that even mean that you weren't you weren't aware of being? Well, okay, I went to a very competitive high school. Like it was like a magnet school. You had to take a test to get in, and honestly, everyone there was like overachiever to the max. And I think everyone there was unwell, but because we were all in this system, no one thought like our dysfunctions were bad. We so were it was like, like everyone was socially awkward because they were kind of high performing mental people. Yeah. I mean, it would be the full range. It would be like popular kids that were good at sports and yeah. could, were like future, you know, politicians. And then like this kid who like, you know, still physically looks like five, but he can like build a bomb or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you. And me in the middle. Yeah. <laughs> what, what were you specializing in at that time? I was, I was just trying to keep my head above water, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. But you felt invisible? Or that you? Yeah, I think I just felt like a. Uh, I think a lot of kids are kind of maybe still in this uh, cycle where you just think if you get into a good college, like everything will work out. So you're really just building towards that. You're like, I'm going to get good grades. I'm going to do the three to four extracurriculars. You know, I'm going to be treasurer of Spanish Honor Society wow. or I whatever. Had, I had none of that. I had none of that. That's the thing, like, I, I talk to comedians, and it feels like a lot of them are like, I never was into school. And I'm like, I wasn't into school, but I just did it because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. But I guess I wasn't a rule breaker. No, but I mean, but your your parents probably drilled something into you. Yeah, yeah. I think the expectation was, like, if you're not doing these things, then you're yeah. not a valuable Yeah, member. I think my parents just put me in school, so, you know, they just, they were like, as long as we don't have to deal with you, <laughs> yeah. you uh, go ahead and fend for yourself. Yeah. I don't remember doing homework throughout. At all? Hardly ever. You until, just opted out. Until my senior year, when wow. you know, my grades were so bad, it looked like I wasn't like I decided I'm not going to college and that, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'll work in where I grew up. And and uh, then then wow. all of a sudden I realized, like, I got to get out. 
So my senior year, I locked in and, you know, got straight A's and it was Whoa. enough to sort of like at least get me into uh, 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 introductory college. Yeah, yeah. But, wow. uh, but you so, had the opposite of senioritis. Yeah, which is usually you don't do the work. Yeah, yeah. Senioritis is like I, I'm good. I did the work. No, I'm full of. Pa- I was full of panic, and I wanted <laughs> out. <laughs> I, saw, I finally saw like, oh, this is an opportunity to get out. See, for me, it was like I worked really hard all of high school, even though my heart wasn't really in it. Like I never liked school. But you did but- well. But I did well because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. And But then I got to college expecting, like, all these answers to show up and, like, me to figure personal out. Personal answers. Yeah, personal answers and just, like, figure out what I was passionate about because yeah. I didn't really like anything in particular. And because I didn't uh, discover that my freshman year, then I then I then that's what sort of led to my mental crisis. Huh. Because I was like, well, then what is the point of any of this? Really? Yeah. It's it's weird that you said you felt sort of invisible because, like, I felt very awkward, but I felt kind of amoebic. Like, oh. I just felt like if I could just attach myself on to <laughs> someone popular, that oh, it would sure. give me definition. Oh, I mean, yeah, for sure. I also felt that way, but I also was like, that's not even an option for me. These people aren't even giving me interviews. <laughs> so freshman year, the existential uh, trap door opens. Yes. Because, like, you got there and you didn't know what to study. You didn't know what your interests were. You thought it would be delivered to you magically by going, which college? Uh, Amherst. Oh, so you're out in the country. Out in the wilderness. <laughs> With those other three schools. What's out there? Like, uh, Hampshire. Hampshire's down the street and, Smith, and UMass, UMass Amherst. UMass. Holy Oak. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty out there. It's very pretty. And Amherst is the small, nice one, right? It's the one that used to be all men. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're out there, you're away from home, you're out in the woods in like this weird pastoral college clusterfuck, and yes. you you freak out. I freak out, and I was running cross-country and track at the time, so, you know, like many, I guess I would assume a woman before me, I channeled my existential angst into body dysmorphia oh you got that too yeah yeah i mean that's what sort of predated the depression is like i really started restricting my eating and i had to take time off of school and then high school uh no no this was the beginning of second year of college so but that had been going on before the restricting no it really started like i think when i was like what is the point of any of this but you you didn't ever struggle with weight i think i struggled with it in in the way i think a lot of women did in the 90s where i was just like why don't i look like this person on the cover of this magazine right yeah so you you kind of entered a eating disorder mm-hmm. body dysmorphia yeah yeah i have that too oh yeah yeah i figure i i figure it's like more common than we Thing. Well, and I was brought up in an eating disorder house. Oh, got I, it. I was raised by a mother with an eating disorder, so oh, I'm, a, I'm, okay. a, I'm a legacy. Okay. <laughs> You're grandfathered in. But I, but I do understand that the problem in terms of the the kind of pressure on on women to feel like they have to be something that they're not based on these ideals is, yeah. is a, a, a broad problem. Yeah, and also, like, my mom is a doctor who treats diabetes, so I think there was always, like, sort of an emphasis on, like, what's a healthy diet? Like, yeah. these are good foods, these are bad foods. So did you 
become dangerous? Did you become anorexic? I lost a lot of weight, but I think for me it was also, I was running a lot at the time, so I think it kind of slipped under the radar because people are just like, oh, yeah, you're really active. Like, right. that, that makes sense. You're small. So, so you, didn't, you didn't give them the backstory. No. <laughs> <laughs> you, no. You hid the backstory and took their interpretation and said, yeah, that's what I am. Yeah, but I diagnosed myself. Like, I, I, you know, usually it's like, oh, we're worried about Aparna. Like, that's how the Lifetime movie goes. But for me, I was like, I'm worried about Aparna. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> that's something, that's a, a voice from the darkness that you, you kind of need. I mean, it was sort of like a doctor uh you know, parents being doctors influence thing where I stopped getting my period for a bunch of months and I was like, this seems wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, then I went to the a... clinic and they were like, yeah, you lost a lot of weight quickly. Have you noticed that? And I was like, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. That's, that was the other part of the story of uh, the surgery on your jaw. Yeah. Is that, you know, when your dad's a doctor, which mine was. Oh, you know, you can always, you're always seeing your dad's friends. Yes. For any sort of medical problem. It's weird. It, it was, it's totally boundaryless. It's. It's like, you know, I don't feel well. It's like, let, I'll call Joe and we'll just go to his house. I'm like, can we not do it that way? <laughs> well, I also feel like my, like South Asian, you know, people sometimes don't have boundaries with others. So like my. Other South Asians, you mean? Yeah. And yeah. we would have like, you know, community events we would go to and. There would be other, like, South Asian families, like, trying to be like, oh, my grandfather has this, like, lump on his arm. Can you look at it right now? Like, just getting yeah. free help. And it would happen. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. they'd do it. Yeah. And there's a lot of South Asian doctors. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, that like, the sort of similarities that we, we share emotionally because of this type of, you know, it is a boundaryless weird thing. But what happened when when you heard that voice in yourself say that you have these problems. I mean, mm. this was the beginning of you acknowledging and realizing you had depression. Yeah, but I I honestly, like, found it kind of cathartic in that it felt like there was finally a label for this thing that I just thought everyone was going through and right. handling better Which than Which was me. what? Just, like, f not knowing what the point of anything is. Oh. Yeah. But it, that's the label? Well, for me, like I would, you know, I grew up and I had periods where I just felt like I didn't like want to exist or like be here, but I didn't know. I just figured it, it was something everyone was experiencing and sort of was able to cope with better than me. I used to, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. You know, I used to, when I first started doing stand up aggressively, uh, I would tell these stories when alternative comedy started. And I, and I just really believed that everybody, if they just let themselves, was yeah. as angry as I was. Yeah. But but years went by, and I started to realize, I, I think they're just laughing at my discomfort. I really don't think they're like, finally someone's speaking for what's inside me. <laughs> I, 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 hate, I hate to admit it, but I... Over time, I've realized there there are well-adjusted people in the world. I know. It's, it's the fucking worst. It's horrible to think about. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so... How long does it take you to to realize that you're you're not well? So I mean that happened pretty quickly. Like I feel like I actually lost most of the weight over like one summer, and then yeah. later in the fall, I think I realized that something was off. But it was, of course, that tricky thing with life where I was like, you know, maybe not being healthy, but then I was running like faster than ever, so I was getting all this positive feedback, right? For this thing that I was told was bad. So I think I was very confused because I was like, 
but wait, these people are telling me it's good, and then these people are telling me it's bad. So that's why I had to leave school, because I just, like, couldn't get a grip on what was going on. And, like, my grades started to go down and all that. So you left school after your sophomore year? The middle of my sophomore year. You just—how did that— I went to, like, a treatment center for eating disorders. Oh, jeez. Yeah. How was that? I I mean, my book is in, about imposter syndrome, and it was still like it was still imposter syndrome because they were like, actually, like your case isn't severe enough for like w- typically we wouldn't let in someone that's not as severe as you are, and so because I live too far away from the treatment center, they're like, okay, you, you can be a resident, because huh. <laughs> usually you would just be a day patient. So you're there with you know people sort of at death's door with yes, with, like uh, much more anorexia. Or bulimia. Yes. Huh. Now, the imposter syndrome frame of your book, Unreliable Narrator, I mean, when did you like when did you come upon that? Because that seems to be the portal through which because you you wrote a real book. It's not just funny (laughs) essays. Oh, oh, like a real book and that's not just funny. Right, right. I mean, you had, you know, you took this on as a thorough memoir. That yeah. are, you know, there are difficult parts to get through. And I imagine it's a relatively happy ending that you're a functional person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the book is just about like how we we don't neatly resolve a lot of these parts of ourselves. And we sort of land at different places in our lives, but they're not really things where it's like there's a neat bow at the end where it's like, and now I love my body unconditionally. Yeah. That's like a week. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then, yeah. And then, and then that week passes, and then there's yeah. four months of like, oh, I'm fucked. Yeah. And then, then one of those weeks comes, and you're like, oh, Yeah, no. yeah. So it's sort of just exploring that we're all kind of messes. And, but what about yeah. what about imposter syndrome in and of itself? Because that's a subtitle, me, myself, and, and, and imposter syndrome. What about that spoke to you, and when did that sort of sing the song that you needed to hear? Well, I think I've always felt kind of outside the box of what people expect of me. Like, even getting good grades in school, I'm like, I'm doing it, but you guys should know that I don't care about any of this, and I'm not really engaged. Like, I'm doing everything at the last minute. I'm not really, like, caring about what I'm learning. And so I always have felt this sort of outsider feeling of, like, even when I'm showing up and doing things and people are like, oh, you're, you get great grades. I'm like, it's not, it's all a farce. Right. I didn't realize that was part of it. I didn't realize that, that you could be functioning perfectly well. I guess that is the nature of it. Like, I, I thought that the, to feel like a fraud, you had to be getting away with something. But if you're actually doing the work, yeah, that there's at least evidence that you're not a fraud in the sense that you're not, it's not some trick. Yeah. But it's still imposter syndrome. It's still imposter syndrome in that you continually feel like people are not knowing what's actually going on with you. And like, you don't feel you're like, you're actually as good as the work you produce. Cause you don't feel like it's actually that good. You're just like, other people seem to think this is good, but I know the truth. It's yeah. Right. It's so funny because there are so many people, especially in the culture we live in now, that, you know, if they're getting away with it, yeah. it's the best thing ever. Yeah. That, you know, it's just sort of like, you, you know, if this is what people believe about me, that's my brand. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I have been, you know, you know chronically hobbled. <laughs> 
<laughs> and fighting the any sort of uh, brand idea. Oh, yeah. And people always have ideas of you. Yes. Uh, you know, they, people have ideas of me and they like they put me in this box and they'd send me out on auditions or something. Yeah. And, and I'd be like, I have no control over this anger. Yeah. This isn't a character. Right. Right. <laughs> you idiots. I know. I feel like I uh, the really perverse thing about Hollywood, too, is you can go out for a part that's like a Mark Maron type. And they're like, eh, you're not quite what we're looking for. And sure. it's like, but that's me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you're not what we're looking for. We'd like some, um, a you that's a little muted. You're too much you. We can't take all this you. So after the eating disorder uh, treatment, did that help? Yeah, it helped. I mean, that was when I first went on antidepressants. I, I, I don't know how long uh, you've dealt with meds, but that was the first time I'd ever had any experience with them. And I would definitely was in that honeymoon period where you're just like, I didn't know you could even experience life in what this med? frequency. I think I started with Prozac and then that changed to Celexa. I, you know, it's like I never stayed on meds that long. I had a therapist who was like, yeah, take the Prozac until we work through this. Yeah, stuff. yeah. That kind of thing. And I'm like, cool. Because I did feel a little muted. Yeah. I liked Wellbutrin because it made me oh, yeah. speedy. Yeah, Like I could feel a physical effect. I'm like, I feel great. Yeah. Go I would, fuck yourself. I was on Wellbutrin and I would clench my teeth so hard <laughs> I'd get headaches. So I had to go off it. Yeah. See, I, I, would, I would welcome that. I would... <laughs> But uh, yeah, I so I I haven't been on on medicine in a while. But it was it gave you uh, uh, a little uh, respite, breathing room. It gave. I mean, I would say it almost gave me like a level of euphoria. Like that was when I first went on them. Was when I tried my first open mic, and I really don't think I would have had the courage to do it otherwise. Like I think it was from that boost. Huh. Yeah. So it was like it w- it turned off the noise. Yeah. Huh. It was almost like when I first had the diagnosis of depression. Like I know there's like stigma attached to it and people are like, I, you know, not everyone wants to admit this is something they struggle with. I felt the opposite. I was I like I wanted to tell everyone. I was like, hey, guys, guess what? I'm depressed. Like that's what my deal is. You yeah. know, like it gave thing. me something to yeah. attach on to. Yeah, I was like, there's a there's a scene in Ironweed that I always remember. It was Tom Waits and Jack Nicholson, and Tom Waits says, "Yeah, I just went to the hospital. Doc says I got cancer, and he says I never got anything before." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like that. It was kind of like this explains me. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's great. Like I used to do a joke that I, I think is probably off base, but I, I I wonder what you would think about it. Is like uh, the 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 advertising for for Prozac used to be like you know it'll it'll give you a new personality kind of thing. Yes. And I used to say, yeah, but the old one's still inside you, <laughs> and it's sort of like I'm, I'm being held prisoner. <laughs> Let me out. <laughs> but but it does mute something because you can't go down those neural pathways the same way. Yeah, but I think for me, I was just like, oh well. I'll take the new ones, you know, right. like I, because I, I've heard people feel that way with meds a lot of the time. They're like, I don't feel like myself. And I, yeah, I guess for me, I just felt like such a shaky sense of self before that I was like, anything that's like given me something to hold on to, I'll take it. But you don't track any of that to, to uh, like, because like, you know, depression is obviously genetic. And that sort of like weird nebulous self thing, I can also track to 
the way I was brought up. Yeah. To, to the parenting. Yes. Were you able to sort of com- you know see both of those things, or you just feel like it's biological? I think I see it as both. Yeah. yeah nature and nurture. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and but even though you're not, even though it's a new personality, it, it enables you to address your life and your past problems uh, with with a, a certain confidence. Yeah. I mean, I think to me, also growing up as like a pretty introverted kid, I saw, you know, extroversion is kind of a little bit more championed in our society. So I was like, if I can get closer to a version of that, I think I'll do better. Yeah. In general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And and so the comedy went well? I, my first open mic went well enough that I think I had the, you know, the seed was planted. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I think if it hadn't, I you know I could very well have pursued I don't know sculpture. What'd you major in in college? Psychology. And you finished it. I got to be a bachelor's. Yeah. And was that after? Did you choose that after you got on the antidepressants? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I just you want the full background. Yeah. Yeah. And did you find that useful? I found it useful in that it was the only subject I found. Uh, continually interesting just because I feel like psychology you can see it at work all the time and like human behavior I'm just like yeah that fascinates me yeah it is pretty fascinating and did you find it also helped you understand yourself yeah you know I'm gonna I'm someone who's gonna stop to take the personality quiz yeah every time I read any psychological book I'm like this is me yeah totally everything (laughs) I'm like a little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I can totally relate. To, you just go to the uh, the DSM or whatever it's called, yeah, yeah, and look at uh, pathologies. It's like, oh, I got a little of that. <laughs> I'm like a, a well rounded psychological problem. Yeah, it's like the opposite. People are like, no, no, that's not me. When Definitely it clearly me. is, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. like, no, all of it. Yeah. So you graduate with that degree with with no intention to sort of pursue it. As uh, I mean, I started. I I did some. I helped my thesis advisor do some research. I I tried to go down a journalism track for a while. Oh, journalism. Yeah, but you never thought like medical school. No, I think it's very much the thing of like what your parents do. You're like, I want nothing to do with that. My freshman year of college, I was like, I'm going to go pre med. What? Because my da- yeah, and uh, I just leaned into it, and I and just, that was after like your senior year awakening, exactly. Whoa. And I just I leaned in. I did well my first year of college wow. with biology, and I understood photosynthesis. I remember that was like the sign that I could, I was capable of studying. Is that I took some biology wow. class, and I was completely obsessed with photosynthesis, That's and incredible. I kind of tracked it. You know, I learned the the cellular elements and all of that shit. Yeah. And I'm like, I can do this. And I called my dad. It's like, yep. I'm going to be a doctor. And then that went away. How did that go away? Too much work. Oh, yeah. And I, I didn't want to be a doctor. I wanted to be an intellectual of some sort. I wanted to be a poet, a performer. I wanted to okay. just express myself somehow. I also wanted to express myself, <laughs> but I felt like I like I took an acting class in college, but I yeah. felt like that thing... Uh, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but you're in the class and you feel like you're not being taken as seriously as like, like they're the people who are, who are being treated like real actors. Yeah. And then you're, they're just like, why are you here? You just need an easy one. Yeah. <laughs> well, I always like, I could never, like, I think with acting that I was always really struggling just to hold on to me. Yeah. So 
the idea of these people that just drift into voices and characters and stuff. Oh, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just don't have that kind of confidence really no. to lose myself because I'm barely holding on. Yeah, yeah. And they and I feel like when you talk to people like that, they're always like, no, but I admire what you do because you're just yourself up there. And I'm like, I, I don't even know who I am. How am I supposed to be someone else? You know, yeah, I'm just exactly. like trying to figure out what, but, what's going on with me. But I think a lot of people feel relief. They're like, I can just do that guy. Right, right, yeah. right. And I imagine that's what we do as an adaptive yes. necessity. Yeah. But, you know, that that's our business. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, this is the me that I'm presenting. Yes. And I've worked hard at building it. It doesn't mean I can build other characters. <laughs> no. <laughs> so, so the comedy kind of stuck. So after you graduate, then you lean in? Then I leaned in. Yeah, I did some journalism internships. Like, I interned at NPR. I interned at a city magazine. Yeah. And then that's when I started doing... Open mics at night, yeah. And you built an act. I built an act, in, yeah. In uh, in out out in out there in uh, in where you lived. I mainly performed in D.C., so oh, I yeah. came up in the D.C. scene. Yeah, who was there when you were there? Mm, like when I was there, it was like Rory Scovel, oh. Seton Smith, Jermaine Fowler. Mm. Uh, yeah, there was it was a good scene. Like you could get good stage time, and I feel like it's not an industry town, so you can kind of. You know, what are the venues? The comedy cafe is gone, right? And the improv is there. And yeah, the improv was there. Arlington Draft House. Oh yeah, there was a lot of. It was more a lot of alternative spots, like little Al- restaurants. Yeah, bars. the Arlington Draft House. I remember when that opened. I did. Yeah, that. yeah, I did yeah. Gigs there. I think it's bigger now. I yeah, think there's a couple of venues like Montgomery Draft House. Oh yeah, maybe yeah. So they had open mics and stuff. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And then when do you like decide like this is it? I'm going to where New York. Like five years in, I was dating a comedian at the time, Hampton Yunt, and I mo- we both decided to move to L.A. No New York. No New York. Oh, really? I spent some time there, but he was very much like, I only want to move to L.A., and I was kind of like, either one seems good, but yeah, sure, let's do L.A. But you felt like you had, you were, did you have enough foresight to think like, well, you know, I've got an act, I'm sort of ready to show myself, or you just thought like, I'll go do comedy there, because that's... Not a great choice, usually, but... <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I think it was just, like, need to be in a bigger pond in terms of moving to the next... And what year was stage. that you came here? 2010. Ah. Uh, huh. I think that's around when we may have first met. Okay. Yeah. And what was... It feels like was... I guess alternative comedy was sort of peaking. If oh, not, yeah, I guess so, yeah. If not, like, on the sort of... Uh, on the uh, other side of peaking, yeah, because it's it's sort of for most uh, intents and purposes has disappeared. Oh, would you say so? I don't know. Maybe I'm just out of the I don't, loop. I don't. I am fully out of the loop. Well, it just feels like in the early aughts around, or maybe mid, that it was huge, you know, and that, yeah. you know, Hardwick had this world, oh, and there right. was all meltdown, these other worlds, you yeah. Meltdown, and then, you know, that became a TV show, which you did. Yes. And that must have been, what, in two, like right when you got here? Maybe a little after, 2013, 2014. Oh, really? So it was kind of plowing along. But it just feels like all those rooms are gone now. Yes, And it it was before COVID that it happened. Oh, right. Yes, yes. But that was sort of the the other world of comedy yeah. that you entered. You know, yeah. you, you weren't going to the comedy store. No, I, I I definitely tried the clubs and I think I just was like, I don't feel like I get this as much as these other rooms. You didn't feel supported? Yeah, I think there was something about the vibe that just doesn't 
Yeah. Sit with me. Yeah, I get it. You yeah. know, you, you can't, you know, you, you can't be vulnerable at all. Yeah. Like, you know, in the alternative rooms, there's a certain tolerance for vulnerability yes. yeah. and longer form stuff that may not go anywhere. Yeah. Whereas the clubs, it's like you had to deliver a thing. Yes. I for, mean, sometimes I felt stuck in both spaces because I yeah. did feel like in alternative, sometimes I wasn't like weird enough. Oh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, where, sure. where I was like. Well, I am still doing just setups and punchlines, and yeah, like, you're a straight joke person. And they were like, "Isn't there what else?" Yeah, are you? <laughs> yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, I mean, it, you you do write jokes. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely alternative joke writers, but yeah. there's also <laughs> the sort of uh, lyrical yes, poets. <laughs> yeah, something <laughs> the the storytelling element, which I am guilty of, but I yes. I believe over time that it. If to do it right, you, they're filled with jokes. Yeah. If you yeah. break them down, so is that when you start doing that stuff? Do you, were you like I'm going to be a comic, or was writing always part of it? Well, I think it was, that was where the imposter syndrome played in. Where I was like, even just calling myself a comedian felt like too presumptuous. Even like two years in, huh? Here. Or, or, or even in DC, right? Because I think I, I was just like, "Who am I to tell people I'm a comedian? Like, I don't, I don't. What have I done?" Well, my thought would be coming from the old school is like, if you're getting paid to do comedy, then you're a comic. Yeah. Now, the the problem I have is when people call themselves artists. I, I'm very reluctant <laughs> to say I'm an artist. You yeah. know, I don't. I'm very proud and fine with comic. Yes. But artists, it's sort of like, let's just step back a minute. You know? Yeah, artist feels like you you have a certain idea of the discourse you're presenting. Right. But I, I think, well, I, I do have that, but it's still like artists is like, I don't want the pressure. Oh, you know, right, just, right, 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 right. Yeah, comedian feels a little less. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a little more working class somehow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but But you were getting paid as a comic? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I feel like spot pay these days is a lot better. I feel like at that time you were doing shows and there was no money in sight. Well, a lot of the alternative shows, which is yes. where the, the yeah. sort of issue came, is that it was indulgent you know, yes. b- uh, b- on both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, as a performer, you could be indulgent, and as you know, the venue would let you indulge, and then yes. they'd be like, well, you can, uh, you, there's some food in back, you know. <laughs> And it was all driven by that. And yeah. that's where you get, uh, there was sort of a, 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 a kind of invasion of amateurs yeah. that were able to kind of, uh, you know, delude themselves for a while. Oh, sure. Yeah. But that that's always, I think that's all, well, there will sure. always be a place for them. No, of course. But it was usually, uh, you know, in a sort of more open mic sort of thing. Oh, yes. Not like, you yes. know, you're headlining tonight. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, so when does uh, the writing kick in? Oh, so, okay. So then I'm in L.A. for like two years. And then I get this writing job on Totally Biased. With, with Kamau. Uh, with Kamau. And that takes me to New York. So Kamau is a great guy. Yeah. And, uh, and you'd never written on a show before. No. And I imagine he was, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, very uh, uh, attentive to diversity. Yes. And because that was a time where there was a lot of uh, talk about the lack of diversity. Yeah. And his whole show was about diversity. Yes. 
So did you feel, have you had experiences in both kinds of writer's rooms or just that was your first experience? I mean, I think I got lucky in that that was my first experience and that was a particularly diverse writer's room. And then after that, I worked at Seth Meyers and that was also, I think, for like an NBC late night show, a more diverse room than than I would have expected. Was there a feeling of like, finally, you know, there's many voices here? I mean, was that a conversation? No, I don't think it was an overt conversation, but I think I still felt like I didn't fit in those places as well. And I think that was... (laughs) But this is just the way you are, I think. Well, that's what I... Yeah, I think that's what I realized was I was just like, I don't think it's that I'm a woman of color necessarily. Like, I don't think that's the end of the story. I think it's just that I don't feel like I fit into groups well. (laughs) Yeah, that's why we chose this world. Yeah. But what was the experience on Kamau Show like? Did you get a lot of stuff on the air and you, you felt like, oh, this is good? I felt like I was go- like constantly felt like I was going to be fired. <laughs> that's not great. But that's like what imposter syndrome is. You're like, this has been a horrible mistake that you hired me. I don't know why I'm here. Was there evidence that that, that was a possibility? Or was that just something you were doing to yourself? I think it's a combination of both because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where you convince yourself you don't deserve to be there and yeah. then you kind of keep proving it right. Right. Yeah. Okay. But uh, there was evidence to the contrary. Like I got on-air segments. I was included in stuff. I, you know, people were like using my jokes. But I, I just constantly felt like I was struggling to keep up with everyone else internally. But you don't know if that was a reality or maybe you were really struggling. I still, I mean, still in hindsight, I'm sort of like, I don't know if I make sense in writer's rooms. Well, but but what were you, but these are uh, our our panel shows. So was it mostly jokes and a few sketches or how, how, what was the job? Yeah, it was like late night. So it would be like, you know, like monologue jokes and then like segments and sketches and field pieces. Yeah. Yeah. But you you were getting stuff on the air. Yeah, but I, I those environments, especially when it's like a topical show and it's like, uh, you know, coming out weekly or every other week or whatever it is, like you feel a pressure that it's like even if you get one thing on, you're like, okay, now I got to think of three more. You know, like it never ends. Yeah, There's yeah, no, yeah. Like I can rest for a second. And you start doing acting as well. Yeah, the acting sort of came after because I worked at Seth Meyers and then I, I was let go from there. Uh, and I think I, that was sort of a point where I was just like, I don't think I really un, like know how to write for late night. And and that's when just like some acting opportunities started coming my way. So it was kind of fortuitous. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how do you feel about doing that stuff? I like acting. I I think uh, I didn't realize going into it how much uh, it is just waiting. You, you and me both. <laughs> it, it's like it, that's the hardest part of that it for me. That is the hardest part of it. Yeah. Because the, doing the scene or whatever, I'm like, this is great, but this is this is like 1% of the job. Yeah. And you were doing mostly sort of guest spots, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then animated stuff. And BoJack, yeah. Did you do a lot of BoJacks? And did that get you other animated projects? Yeah, because I think voiceover people were always like, you have a, you know, you have a voice that would be good for voiceover. And then I never knew how to break in because it's very competitive. And so I think that first break helped me kind of 
usher myself into other things. Well, it's funny because with voiceover, like there there are voiceover actors that can do ninety characters. Yes, like that's in a minute. Not me. Yeah, it's like you know you. The same with me. Like, if you're hiring me, you're going to get this, yeah. or you're going to get some version of this. How you doing? Those are the two. Like, horse, like a horsey kind of, you know, this thing, or or me regular. I know. I used to feel embarrassed that I was like, my range is me to me. <laughs> <laughs> but now I'm just like, okay, that's what I'm bringing to the table. And corporate? That seemed like a big... Uh, oh, okay. yeah. Corporate was uh, Comedy Central. That was... Um, you might know these guys, Jake Weissman, Matt Ingebrigtsen, and Pat Bishop uh, made this sort of dystopian workplace comedy that I was. Uh, Looks like he did a lot of episodes. I was a, I was a regular on that HR, the HR lady. Oh, you were? Yeah. How was that, fun? That was really fun. I, I mean, working with your friends, I feel like that's, that's like the best. Yeah? Yeah. And they were your friends? Yeah. I mean, I think that's helped me get the job. And you're doing stand-up through it all? Yeah, but I with stand up I started struggling more and more with performing performance anxiety. Really? Mhm. Like it got really bad where I would just like even usually it would be so bad leading up to the performance, but then it started getting where it wouldn't even go away once I was on stage. Right. Uh and I really didn't know what to do cuz like nothing seemed to be helping it and beta re- blockers. I I was taking like uh Propanolol and didn't stuff, do it. but it wasn't doing enough. Mm. Yeah. So you're just terrified. I was just terrified all the time, and I like finally days before kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, it's the worst. And it was sort of that thing of like I, you know, I was getting more opportunities to headline and stuff, and I felt like worse and worse about it because I think you know your ex- what you think people expect of you gets higher. Yeah. And so I, when I was working on this book, I took a break from stand up. It was also like when the pandemic happened. And I took like a three-year break, and I I think I never would have thought I would have come back to it after that long away. But since I've come back, I I would say it's like the best thing I'd ever done for me. To get away. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot, you know, not... But I don't know anything else. You know, I'm not. No, like, I, yeah, I get it. You know, I'm not uh, really a writer and I do some acting. Yeah. But it's just, it, it's just part of my dialogue, you know, yeah. is to go up there and do the thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I tend to worry more about like when are people going to start, start not giving a shit. Yeah. Or turning on me. Oh, yes. Uh, then like, you know, should or shouldn't I be doing this? But like I've gone, I don't go very long without doing it, but because I, I am where I'm at in my life. Uh, sometimes when I don't do it, it's sort of like, okay, I'm, yeah, I, I'm okay. <laughs> Maybe I, that was what I said after COVID, like when no one was doing stand-up, yeah. uh, I didn't, I didn't want it. I didn't care. I didn't want to do it. Yeah. And th- my first thought, and you'll relate to this, is like, maybe I'm all better. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm cured. Exactly. <laughs> but as soon as other people started doing it, I was like, nah, fuck, here we go. That's the thing. My relationship with performing, it's like very love-hate. It's like I need it, but then when I'm doing it, I'm like, am I happy? But then without it, I'm not happy. Yeah. It's a weird, it's a weird thing. Well, I, it, it, I, to me, it leads back to that thing where you feel, you start to feel kind of invisible again. Yes. Because after a certain point, it kind of defines you. Yeah. And it is, and I think it's one of the main reasons I got into it, a way to be seen and to be seen as how you decide to be seen. Yes. 
So when you kind of let that go, you're like, I'm back into this amoebic kind of like, yeah, no, who I, am I business? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And you have so much control over, yeah, what, how long you're being seen. Yeah. What and other people get to see. The only thing you, you don't have control over is like whether or not people like seeing you. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but see, I would have the anxiety for me comes in where what you're saying you worry about where you're like, are people not going to care anymore? Are they going to be over it? Like I would start having those thoughts as soon as I saw them in the audience. I would be like, they're already going to be like, this was a mistake. Why did I come? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I tried to just fight that one. Yeah. The idea that I know them. Yes. Like, you know, just by like or you sit there and you listen to the comic before you and you're like, oh, fuck. <laughs> like, yeah. seriously, like if. <laughs> If someone comes off stage before I go on and says they're great, I'm like, oh, God damn it. So I gotta wanna know that. Just like don't tell me they're great. That doesn't mean anything for me. That's the thing. It's like bombing now. I'm just like, it does it's not bombing that that kills me. It's more just like when they like everyone else and then they like you less. Yeah, but like <laughs> and we're just judging that on what? Our, I know, our, our I know. own insecurities and the laughs we get, right? Yeah. But, like, after a certain point, I just decided it's like, well, you know, either I'm going to decide to sort of go get them. Yeah. Which I can do and just overwork it. Yes. Pick up the pace. Yes. Or uh, or just sort of, like, sit in what I want to do. Yeah. And get what I get. Yes. And sometimes it's a little, not so much disappointing, but, like, it, it's more earnest. Yeah. You know, than doing the charm trick. No, it is. I think I I, I lean more towards the latter. Yeah. As well. Yeah. yeah. And I, I had to learn to, to slow down and just kind of do it that way, you know, because I judge myself against, you know, killers all yeah. the time. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, and I, I know I can do that. Yeah. But it, to me, it's like if you're more thoughtful and you let things, you know, kind of have a different pace. Yeah. It's more rewarding if it really works. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not doing all the dancing. But I don't know if you do the dancing. <laughs> not literally. I did a but. show recently where I, I, uh, I, w- I wouldn't say I made the best decision in doing it. But it was a show where you have to try and be a clown. Oh, you- <laughs> wow. That's bold. Good for you. It's courageous. How'd that go? Terribly. <laughs> did you put on a nose? No, but it's like, it's all stand-ups trying to do clowning. And first, what happens first is you go up there and you get roasted. Your stand-up act gets roasted. And that's the part where things went south for me. The first part? The first part. What show was this? Um, Now I'm scared to say because it's a podcast. (laughs) Oh, and then then you're supposed to do the clowning? And then you're supposed to do clown scenes and and the director um, makes fun of you. Yeah, it's what clowning is, I guess. I don't know about the whole kind of the, you know, like, I don't, I can take a few shots, especially if they're good. Yeah. They're from people I like. Well, that's the thing. I'm like, uh, the thing with roasting is it needs to be from someone who knows you. Yeah, yeah. If if I don't know you and you're making fun of me, how am I supposed to feel? Yeah, yeah. I I don't love it. And I'm not great at roasting because I'm only, I'm only good at insulting people if I'm, you know, kind of uh, if I know them well yeah. or I'm actually trying to hurt somebody, <laughs> <laughs> you know, which happens just defensively sometimes. Yeah. I do it less. I'm like, if we're going to do a roast battle, it needs to be behind closed doors. We need to build up a couple years of intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't do those roast battles. <laughs> I'm not, you know, it's just like, it's not, 
I, I, you know, and I, I don't mind. I like Don Rickles to a yeah, degree, yeah, yeah, and but, yeah. and I get the art of it. Yeah. But uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't really want to do it. Well, that's always funny to me when people are like, "Oh, com- it's just a joke." Like, who cares? Like, why are you so sensitive? I'm like, I'm a comedian. Of course, I can't take a joke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to. I'm the most sensitive. Yeah, that's yeah. why I do this. You have to learn after a certain point, just to be like, "All right, good one." <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then go home and be like, "What the fuck did he mean?" Yeah, of what? course I'm going to be mad about this forever. Yeah, exactly. Those things are cataloged. <laughs> so, what's the plan now? Just to uh, tour with the book a bit? Yeah. Yeah. I've never been good at setting goals. Yeah, Whenever people are like. What do you want to do next? I'm like, I don't know. I don't even know in a given day what I'm going to do next. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, me neither. Like, I'm always surprised by my schedule. Yeah. Like, I get up in the morning, I'm like, what? Oh, I didn't even, I forgot about that. <laughs> I have to do an award show? You know. Oh, my gosh. I'm kidding. It's not that bad. But. I'm I, always surprised, even though it's been on the calendar for a month or two. I think it's better to be surprised that you're going to do an award show because for me, I'm like, I would be so anxious about it. It would almost be better to just be like, guess what? You're doing an award show. Tonight. Yeah. I just, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I just forget that I have these gigs. And most of the time, I'm like, why did I take it? Oh, of course. Every time. Yeah. I've been trying to be better about saying no to things that I know I'm going to cancel on if I agree to it. But uh, now my trick is that if I say yes to a thing, because usually I'm just so flattered to be asked. Right. Now I say yes to it if I'm like, if this were tomorrow morning or like in four hours, would I want to do it? And if I cannot say yes, then I say no. Yeah. I I just say no to a lot of things now because like uh, I feel old enough to do that and and a little more financially secure. So I'm like, especially like, it's like, how many weeks do I, like if it's acting, it's like, where is it? Oh, yeah. How many, how many weeks? That's the thing with acting. They make you feel like you should be so lucky every time. To go to like, uh, to go to Scotland for three months, (laughs) to shoot, to sit in a trailer in Scotland. And you're like, Scotland, wow, that would be great. And you're like, you're not going to be seeing Scotland. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's good to know that stuff. Yeah. But uh, all right, well, you sound like you're in a pretty good place. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, for, I'm, I'm very microcosm. Like, I am I enjoying this cup of coffee? Then okay, th- that's good. Mm. Things are good. That's good. So you don't let your, yeah. But th- I do that, and then like my brain sort of like doesn't take the same break. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's no, like it's a great cup of coffee, and then my brain's like, but what about? I'm like, can we just? Yeah. No, it's a constant. You got to yeah. I'm trying to be nicer to my brain like instead of being like shut up. I'm I'm trying to be like I un- I understand where you're coming from. You know, like yeah, the yeah, sort of can, Buddhist. Right. Can we talk about it later though? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's wait till later tonight when I'm I'm in bed. Yeah. And uh then you can start this conversation. Yes. Well, good luck with the book. Thank you so much. It, it was fun to read what I read, and uh, good to finally talk. Yeah, great to talk. Wait a minute. <laughs> Wait, you were didn't you do a live WTF? Yes, I. I it was uh, when I first moved to LA. I did like two thousand and eleven. Okay, I did Steve Allen Theater. Right, there was a panel. I think Ron Funches was on it. Maybe sure. That was like the old W. That was our our, our attempt at, at making money. We do the live ones and try oh, to sell okay, them. Okay, okay, okay. So it was like it was Steve Allen. So it was yes. Ron Funches. Was Eddie Pepitone involved? Or 
No. Maybe, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I can't remember the other guests, but I, yeah, that was my first big L.A. break where I was like, maybe I haven't made a horrible mistake. <laughs> the live WTF. Yeah. At the old Steve Allen. That was my credit when I went on shows. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad I could, uh, you know, provide you that. I mean, yeah. full, full circle. <laughs> and also, I made a... Uh, Courtesy of my anxiety, I made a joke about abortion at the top, and I do not stand by it. And I'm sorry I said it. We can take it out. <laughs> okay. Well, I wasn't sure. I didn't want to censor your no. form. Well, uh, yeah, we, we can do that, and we'll just leave it at, uh, it was nice talking to you. All right, great. There you go. The book, Unreliable Narrator, Me, Myself, and Imposter Syndrome, is available now wherever you get books. Hang out for a second, will you? People, on Monday's show, you'll hear my talk with Chevy Chase. And if you're a Full Marin subscriber, you can listen right now to me and Brendan talking about the experience right after Chevy left the garage. Does he think he got railroaded or something? Not that I could tell. I mean, I think he thinks he did 50 movies. And right. I think that, you know, he thinks he's still waiting for an opportunity that's going to happen. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't think he would, you know, in retrospect. But there was no talking about that kind of stuff, you know, re reflectively, other than the talk show, which we, he was. That was the best moment, really, because he was like, you know, I was I was terrible at it. I don't I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> He said, like, you know, he had watched other people do it and he took the opportunity and he decided that he was, you know, he didn't need notes. He was just going to do it. And then he says, yeah. my first guest was Robert De Niro. And I'm like, what are you thinking? To sign up for the full Marin so you can get all our bonus episodes twice a week, go to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF Plus. Again, Chevy Chase is on next Monday's show and then LeVar Burton on Thursday. Good times. Guitar time.
Boomer lives. Monkey and LaFonda, cat angels everywhere.